Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker were two unruly individuals who came to live in the Dallas area where they eventually met back in 1930. This is right before the Great Depression. After they were both released from prison in 1932, the two formed a gang and they were known for their bank robberies during the Great Depression, although they preferred to rob small stores and funeral homes. Their evil deeds caught the attention of the American public and most certainly law enforcement. They became known simply as Bonnie and Clyde. Numerous people were killed in their robberies or when they were being pursued by law enforcement. Barrow was involved in killing nine law officers. In May 1934, Barrow had 16 warrants outstanding against him for multiple counts of robbery, auto theft, other kind of theft, escape, assault, and murder in four different states. <clears throat> that same month, after much effort by law enforcement to predict their movement, a posse was, was formed and they narrowed in on their location. They set up an ambush along Louisiana State Highway 154, positioning a vehicle to appear stalled. Bonnie and Clyde slowed down as they approached on that highway and law officers opened fire, unloading 130 rounds on the vehicle, killing them both. They were certainly a notorious evil and ungodly couple in American history. Well, we come today to a notorious evil and ungodly couple in biblical history, specifically in the northern kingdom of Israel during the years of the divided kingdom. And this couple is Ahab and Jezebel. We are introduced to them today, uh, but they're actually going to be on the scene through various lessons through January the 7th. So they'll be around a while. But on a more uplifting note, we will also be introduced today to the great prophet and man of God, Elijah. And he will be part of our lessons as well uh, through January the 28th. So I, I invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. We're going to be looking at the latter end of this chapter, and then we'll also be looking at <coughs> chapter 17 as well and covering that. So I've entitled the lesson, The Beginning of the Reign of Ahab and the Ministry of Elijah. Beginning in verse 29 through the end of uh, chapter 16, this is the beginning of the evil reign of Ahab. It's the very first mention of him. And we see in verse 29 that Ahab succeeds his father Omri as king over the northern kingdom. Verse 29 now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. So again, we're talking about the northern kingdom of Israel in this divided kingdom period. And Ahab becomes king. Now we've looked so far at these, we've covered these kings this is in the northern kingdom again, starting with Jeroboam, and you can see how we've gone down. Remember that Tibni and Omri, they were both kings. There were half the people uh, followed Tibni, half covered Omri. Eventually, Omri uh, was the ultimate king. Tibni died. Well, Ahab is Om Omri's son. And so he, he became king. He reigned for 22 years. This would be in 874 to 853 B.C. In verse 30, it tells us that he did more evil than any king before him. 
Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Okay, he was not good. Israel's history in the north has not seen a lower point spiritually than so far than with Ahab. We saw last time when we looked at Omri, his father, th it was mentioned that he did more evil than any king before him, but Ahab even tops that. Or should we say he goes lower than that? Um, he not only continued the idolatry of Jeroboam, but he also promoted the worship of Baal, which we will see shortly. In verses 31 and 32, he, he married Jezebel, who influenced him as well as the people to worship Baal. Look at verse 31. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab, it, it's an interesting uh, way they mention this. He, Ahab thought it was a trivial thing, like no big deal to carry on in the sins and evil of Jeroboam. Like, but wait, there's more. I'm going to go even farther. And he chose to marry Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of Ithbaal, who was king of the Sidonians. Ithbaal, uh, that name means Baal is alive. So you get an idea of where this guy is coming from. Ithbaal was actually the king of Phoenicia. So here's a uh, map of the land of Israel. If we zone in, Phoenicia is up north of Israel. Which, and this would include uh, Sidon as well as the, the city of Tyre. It's right there on the coast. So this is where he, he was king. He assumed the throne there by killing his predecessor. And he also worshipped pagan gods. Not exactly a good family to marry into. Especially given that the daughter was just like her father. Marrying a foreigner violated the Mosaic law, right? God was very clear early on, don't marry uh, people outside of, of the Israelites. Why? Because they can have a negative influence. They can bring in their pagan influence, their worship of other gods into God's covenant people. That's exactly what Ahab is doing. By the way, does anyone have a daughter named Jezebel? <laughs> a granddaughter, someone extended family? I mean, you laugh because we all know nobody uses that name, right? Now, I had an uncle once who named a cow Jezebel. <laughs> and that, that was appropriate. It had to be a very, you know, a cow that really acted up. But we, we know that name, that very name Jezebel, is, it's associated with evil. And that's not, not just in our culture. Even the Lord himself uh, associated that name with evil. In Revelation chapter 2, in that message to the church there at Thyatira, it reads in verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So even in the very last book of the New Testament, this name Jezebel, it's just synonymous with evil and rebellion. Well, Jezebel influences Ahab to worship Baal. He he, the king, even builds a house of Baal, it says there, and he erects an altar there. He builds an altar in the capital city 
of the northern kingdom, this new capital city, Samaria, that his father established. Now, Baal, just a little bit of background on him or this, uh, this pagan god. He was the Canaanite storm god and the bringer of rain. Now, keep that in mind. It's going to be very interesting as the story unfolds. Uh, one Bible dictionary states, as the storm god and bringer of rain, Baal was recognized as sustaining the fertility of crops, of animals, and of people. His followers often believed that sexual acts performed in his temple would boast Baal's sexual prowess and thus contribute to his work in increasing fertility. Baal was part of the religion of virtually every culture of the ancient Near East, and he appears under many names, uh, you know, Baal and then some other additional name. It's amazing that the king of God's covenant people would build a temple and a place of worship for Baal and lead and then influence God's people to worship there. That's how low, how bad things have gotten in the northern kingdom. Verse 33 says, He did more to provoke God to anger than any king before him. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That collective term in the Hebrew uh, than all, it, it, while it's possible to mean that Ahab provoked the Lord more than any single king prior to him, it's also possible to mean that Ahab provoked the Lord more than all prior kings put together. Ahab was bad, and he made the Lord angry. He provoked him. In verse 37, we were told that during his reign, Hiel, uh, a man, built Jericho. Look at verse 34. In his days, in other words, during Ahab's reign, Hiel, the Bethelite, built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, it, it seems like this is a diversion from the text. We're talking about Ahab and how bad he is. And then we're told about this guy, Hiel, building Jericho. What's the, the connection? Well, it's possible that Ahab... Uh, sponsored or certainly gave his approval for this. And it's just an indication of the kinds of things uh, that happened under Ahab's reign that should not have. Notice what the text says here. This guy, Hiel, he lost his oldest son while laying its foundations for the city of Jericho, wh which he's, he's rebuilding. He lost his youngest son, while setting up its gates. Now, w what does that mean? I mean, it, it could mean that they simply died during that part of the, the rebuilding or construction process. It's possible, given the culture, that they could have been sacrificed. So child sacrifice could have been involved. We just don't know. But the... The passage here, or the, the verse says, this happened exactly as God warned through Joshua. Well, if you, if you remember when God supernaturally destroyed the city of Jericho, remember under Moses uh, and Joshua, they were about to come into the promised land, and uh, God caused the, the walls to crumble down. He destroyed Jericho. Well, Joshua established a covenant with the people that the man who attempts to rebuild this city will be cursed. And listen to what was written. Joshua 
6.26, Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. Wow. That was like 540 years, plus or minus, before this happened that God established this curse. And it happened to Hiel exactly as it was given to the Lord. The, the loss of, of uh, the oldest child, the loss of the youngest child, when these particular elements of the rebuilding took place. It's just amazing. It's just a testimony again that whatever God says happens exactly the way he says it will happen. Well, that's just our introduction to Ahab today. There's a lot more that's going to unfold as we continue to work through um, the series. But we move on now to chapter 17 and we see here the initial ministry of Elijah the prophet. In the darkness of the idolatry that's going on in the northern kingdom, God raises up a light. And that light is Elijah the prophet. Let me give you some background on Elijah. This is not exhaustive, but just to get our minds thinking about this phenomenal man. He, he was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, and we'll see how this unfolds. A key aspect of Elijah's ministry was to confront the worship of Baal. And we, uh, well, we'll see this in the text today. This is the timeline. If you look at the northern kings of the kings of the northern uh, kingdom, Israel, you can see Elijah's time of ministry as a prophet. So much of that overlaps with Ahab. Elijah, his ministry actually extends beyond Ahab and touches, I think, two other kings. But a lot of his ministry is centered around Ahab. He had a unique, miraculous ministry as a prophet of God. He is not your typical prophet. Now, let me let me just give some background on this. Sorry, I need to get a, a throat thing. <clears throat> if we look at the period of miracles, and you guys, you're we're well taught here at Countryside, and and you know that miracles are not normative for for prophets. They ha they were not in the Old Testament. They haven't been in church history. There's really three periods of miracles, or we should say miracle workers. And uh, let me be clear. There's different times where God did miracles. I mean, you think of Tower, Tower of Babel. You think of Noah's flood and so on. And there's times that God did miracles. But in terms of having miracle workers, were people through whom miracles were done. It's very limited. There was the time with Moses and Joshua, and that was a period of roughly 65 years. Very limited. Uh, where, where those two men, they, they did miracles. Power of God was seen through them. They were authenticated uh, through their, their miracles. The other was Jesus and the apostles, right, in the, the first century, this was a period of roughly uh, 70 years from the time of we just started the baptism of Jesus that would initiate his ministry going through the end of of John the Apostles life, roughly 98 A.D., uh, you know, plus or minus. So we're talking about a 70 year period where miracles happened in um, in the New Testament period. And then we come to Elijah and Elisha from 860 to about 795 B.C. And again, a period of about 65 years. 
that's it. That's the three major periods of, of miracle workers. And in our study, we are, we are entering into this period with Elijah and Elisha. And we're going to see even today, miracles done through Elijah um, as you know, a, a, an authenticating mechanism that God used for the people to say and to think, you need to pay attention to what this prophet is saying. So Elijah was very unique in that, that respect as a prophet. Elijah was bold. He was uncompromising. And he suffered persecution and rejection because of it. He didn't experience physical death. He didn't actually die like a normal human being. But he was taken directly to heaven according to 2 Kings chapter 2, which we will study later. His return is promised before the day of the Lord in the last two verses of the Old Testament. Did you know that? Here it is, Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Well, the angel told Zacharias that his son, John the Baptist, would be the forerunner of Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah. We see that in Luke 117 and, and some other places. And then Jesus identified John the Baptist as the Elijah who was promised to come. Several uh, places at Mark, uh, Matthew 11, Mark chapter 9, that that's mentioned. And it's not in the sense that Elijah is, it's really Elijah or it's Elijah reincarnated. Don't think that. It's just that they're, they're coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. They're like Elijah. That's the, the idea, the sense. At the transfiguration, who was there? Moses and Elijah. And the, the two witnesses in the great tribulation before the second coming of Christ may possibly be Elijah and Moses. It's mentioned, you know, the two witnesses. We looked at that in the study of Revelation. Or it at least will be people like them. It very well could be them, but, but it could be people, again, who, who come in their, the spirit and power of Elijah. So Elijah is not just your ordinary prophet. I mean, he's, he is a major, major uh, prophet. And we'll find out more about Elijah as we go through our study. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 17, the first six verses look at Elijah and the drought. Look there at verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to, to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So Elijah declared a prolonged drought to Ahab. Why? As judgment for idolatry. Elijah's name means my God is Yah. Yah being a shortened form of Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. And that relates perfectly to his ministry to confront Baal worship and declare that God alone was to be worshipped. Now it says he's a Tishbite. That means he's from the town of Tishbe which uh, is located east of the, the Jordan River, likely where it's shown there on the map. Notice there's no record of God telling Elijah to, to do this. It seems that it was requested by Elijah according to James 5.17. Again, this is in the New Testament looking back. Inspired writing. It says there, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. But Elijah's prayer 
for this drought was it in accordance with God's will. Elijah knew that Ahab and the northern, uh, the people in the northern kingdom, they had broken their covenant with God through gross idolatry. And Elijah knew the consequences that God had established for that. Again, going back to Moses and Deuteronomy, this is before they entered into the promised land. God warned the people. It says there, Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17, Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit. And you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. So Elijah prayed according to what God had previously spoken to what he knew to be God's will, and it happened. And it, it seems like during this time um, was when God called Elijah into service as part of uh, him praying this, and then God called him to start doing things as his representative. Now, the timing of when the drought ended, according to 1 Kings 18.1, indicates because it says there in the third year that the, the drought is ending. So it, it would seem that the drought at the time where Elijah goes and confronts Ahab and initiates this, it's already underway, has been underway for six months. And Elijah is simply saying it's going to continue to be this kind of drought until I uh, declare otherwise. Now remember, Really important to keep this in mind. Baal is the Canaanite storm god and the bringer of rain. So if you're in a drought, who do you pray for or pray to? If you're a pagan, you pray to Baal. Baal's going to deliver you, right? Well, the first miracle in Elijah's ministry is a direct confrontation between the power of God to withhold rain versus this supposed power of Baal to produce rain and fertility. So God has sent Elijah to go confront head on this false idolatry. So God sent Elijah into seclusion after that where he miraculously sustained him. Look at verse 2. The word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. Uh, some translations start that word with a K, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Kirith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. Now, uh, Kirith is uh, likely a, a, a seasonal brook close to where Elijah is from, from Tishbe there. You can see it on the map east of the Jordan. Now, why would God tell Elijah to go hide himself? He's saying, I, this is far away from Ahab, and he's, God is making Elijah inaccessible uh, on purpose. Elijah can't go and, and plead with, uh, or Ahab can't go and, and plead with Elijah, Elijah. And it also gives Ahab plenty of time to ask Baal to, to solve the problem. Patterson and Austell, commentators, write, Not only would Ahab's frantic search for the prophet be thwarted, but Elijah's very absence would be living testimony of a divine displeasure. So God sends him away for this purpose. Now, similar to how God provided quail and manna for the Israelites in the wilderness, you remember that, so God here, 
provided meat and bread twice a day for Elijah. It's, uh, the, it's delivered by ravens, just a term for large black birds. Now, there are liberal, non-supernatural commentators who say, well, this word ravens, it really means like merchants. You know, it, it refers to people. There has to be some non-supernatural explanation, but no, the word just simply means large black birds. Now, let's be honest. How many of you would eat meat delivered by birds? I mean, normally in Texas, we, we're thinking roadkill, right? <laughs> and these birds are picking up roadkill and bringing it. But... Um, yeah, a different kind of door dash, a bird dash. <laughs> yeah, bird dash, that's a good one. Well, this, this is God's provision. And it, it will be just fine for Elijah. And it comes every, every morning and every evening. So that's Elijah and the drought. The next uh, event here is Elijah and the widow at Zarephath. And this is beginning in verse 7. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him, came to Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Now, so we see here God sent Elijah to the region where Jezebel's father was king. Zarephath, it's up there in uh, Phoenicia where, you know, by Sidon and Tyre, that's where Jezebel's from. That's her homeland. That's where her dad is, her father is reigning. This is like, you know, a, a massive area where Baal worship is going on. And God is sending Elijah right into the heart of that to, uh, to demonstrate God's power in this place that, again, is thick with Baal worship, where Jezebel learned to worship Baal. And then we see in verse 9 that God told Elijah that a widow will care for him there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. God tells Elijah, I want you to stay there in this unfriendly environment, um, and Elijah does it, he, he obeys, and he tells him that a widow will provide for him there. I mean, remember, drought's going on. There's a, a lack of food. It's, it's major. And he says, I'm paving the way, and this widow lady is going to provide for you. And then we come to this uh, story we're all familiar with, if You've been in the church for any period of time. The miracle of the continuous bowl of flour and jar of oil. And then in, in verse 10, we see where Elijah met the widow who was preparing a final meal, a meal for herself and her son. Verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. She's preparing her last meal. It's like this, all the, the flour I have left, you can hold in your hand and there's just a little bit of oil to add to it. One final meal, that's it. Our supply is, is done. There's no hope and she knows it's it's her last meal and they're they're going to starve to death. Well. Elijah then asked 
that she feed him first and declares that God will provide. Verse 13, then Elijah said to her, do not fear, go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. Perhaps this was a test to see if she was the widow that God had commanded who would feed him. I mean, how how would Elijah know? Maybe the Lord would give some indication. It's not clear in the text if he really knows this is the one or not. So it, it could be a test to see if if uh, she's going to, to do what he asks. It's certainly a major test of faith for the widow. Now think about it. If, if you were the widow, how would you have responded? I mean, in my flesh, I would have said something like, well, let me tell you what, mister. I'll take this remaining flour and oil and I'll make some... Uh, you know, bread or whatever from for me and my son. And if something else shows up, then I'll make it for you. How 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 about that deal? But she doesn't do that. Now, Elijah knew. And I think it's important to point out. Elijah knew that a miracle was coming. God had already revealed to him uh you know, he, he was going to be able to do this miracle. God was going to bring it about. So his request to be fed first was not selfish. It, it was meant to set up as a test, a test of faith and a demonstration of the power of God and something that would grow the faith of the widow as well. Well, she did as Elijah commanded. And the flour and oil miraculously were not exhausted. Verse 15. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. The woman did according to the word of Elijah and what he declared would happen according to what God said. She acted on it in faith and things happened exactly as God said. You know, I don't know if you've ever had what you thought was like an Elijah moment. You know, I know this is kind of dumb, but sometimes I've been shaving and I have this can of shaving cream and it never goes out it seems like and I'm thinking okay am I having like this Elijah miracle just for day it just goes on and on I'm like wow this is amazing well it's not maybe uh, this was this was a phenomenal miracle it, we're not sure how it happened but they would use the flour and oil and come back and it's like nothing had ever been taken out it was constantly replenished. Well, we too are called to listen and obey the word of the Lord as given through his appointed prophets. What God says is going to happen always happens. And what we're told to listen to and obey is captured in the canon of Scripture, culminating in the apostles and those closely associ associated with them who wrote the New Testament on behalf of Christ and inspired by the whole the Holy Spirit. I mean, that that is the same word of God as the word of God that came to this widow. And God's word always happens exactly as he says. We also see God's amazing grace to this woman. I mean, she's outside the covenant people of God, right? She's not a she's not an Israelite. Yet. God was gracious to her. God showed his ability to provide when Baal, the supposed, you know, God who should be providing all of this, he's impotent. 
He can do nothing. Proclaiming this truth was Elijah's mission about the power of God and the, the foolishness of these false idols. And we'll continue to see that in the ministry of Elijah. Well, the next story that finishes the chapter is the miracle of raising the widow's son from the dead. Beginning in verse 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So he died. Verse 18. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to you have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. That's not a question. That's a statement you can see with the exclamation mark. Uh, so she's kind of blaming Elijah. Like you've brought this calamity on us, perhaps. I mean, she's she's devastated at the loss of her son. Well, in verses 19 to 22, Elijah prayed for the boy. He took the boy, prayed, and the Lord brought him back to life. Verse 19, she said, or he said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom. So obviously, this is a smaller boy that she's able to carry. She's holding her, her dead son. And he he took the boy from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room. This would be where he would be staying where he was living and laid him on his own bed. Verse 20, he called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? You know, at this point, Elijah seems puzzled too. He was he came there to to minister God's grace to her and this this sadness has come upon the household and he, he, does, he doesn't understand it. He poses this question to God. And folks, honest questions to God are okay when we're seeking to understand God's plans and intentions. Have you ever asked questions of God? Yeah, and that's okay. As long as your questions are not accusations. Questions can be just a, a front to essentially make an accusation against the character of God. And that's sinful. That turned out to be Job's uh, sin. Yeah. But here, Elijah is looking for an answer. He, he wants to understand. Did God answer? I mean, possibly. It's not covered here in the text. But out of that question... Elijah then prays and petitions the Lord. Verse 21. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times. And he called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him. And he revived. Those are awesome words. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah. Uh, we know from Scripture, the prayer of a righteous man, what? Availeth much. And God heard his prayer and he, he responded. This is one of, of eight accounts that's recorded in Scripture of someone miraculously being brought back to life, not including the resurrection of Jesus. Well, verses 23 and 24, the widow acknowledged that Elijah truly was a man of God. Verse 23, Elijah took the child and brought him down you know, from that upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is what? 
is truth. MacArthur writes, Canaanite myths claim that Baal could revive the dead. Not only supposedly could Baal bring rain, but he could raise the dead. But he, he couldn't do it here. But here it was the Lord, not Baal, who gave back the boy's life. This conclusively demonstrated that the Lord was the only true God and Elijah was his prophet. Now, what do you think happened after this event? Was the widow the only one to know about what happened? No, word spread. And that was the whole point. God is the God who uh, can bring rain and provision and even bring the dead back to life. Now, she says here, now I know that you are a man of God. That denotes one who could speak authoritatively for God. And these miracles, that's the purpose of miracles. Not only it's a provision of God's grace, but it's done to authenticate the messenger. That's, that's always a key component of, of miracles. And God uh, allowed Elijah to do miracles, to authenticate him, to powerfully bring this message to the people in the northern kingdom during this divided period and this massive time of idolatry. Well, that's, that concludes chapter 17. Let's look at some reflections. Uh, a number of things really we can think about, but you know, I, I couldn't help but think s about how sin and evil grow in hardened hearts apart from repentance and God's grace. I mean, right, that's just the nature of fallen flesh, of evil, of rebellion against the Lord. It's like a snowball, and it can just grow and grow. And we see this in the line of kings in the northern kingdom. Uh, in Jezebel, think about her, how evil her father was. And boy, she's, she's a chip off the old block, being just like her father. And we'll see that play out in her, her lifetime. And it's true also of the people in the northern kingdom. This, is, this has become a very evil people. And we know the end of the story, where things are headed, right? Eventually, the Assyrian captivity, God's going to bring in the Assyrian army, wipe out the northern kingdom. Poof, northern kingdom is gone forever never to return, never to reorganize. Uh, only the southern kingdom remains. So a key takeaway for us is take drastic measures to confront sin and idolatry in your own heart. You know, Scripture in the New Testament tells us to, to deal with our sins seriously and drastically. If your eye causes you to sin, what? Pluck it out. That's not literal. People in the New Testament didn't go around taking out their eyes. But it, the point is to deal drastically, take drastic measures to confront sin and, and the idols in your own heart. Or otherwise it, it grows and it, it can influence the next generation. Parents, what kind of influence are you passing on to your children? Secondly, while God is gracious and patient, he ultimately will judge sin and disobedience. This is a message that we see throughout Scripture. God is patient. I mean, he could have just right now wiped out the northern kingdom. I'm done. But what does he do? He sends a godly prophet to them to proclaim the truth and to call them to repentance. And he does this for numerous generations. Don't test God. If you know deep in your heart that you are in rebellion against God, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, uh, there, there could be an area of rebellion. Don't test God. Don't test his patience. Don't take advantage of his gracious nature. You need to heed his warnings and obey him. We need to grow in godliness or there can be consequences. Third, Elijah had a heart that was jealous for the worship of God and for his honor. 
and God heard his prayers. I, I love just meditating on that. We should follow Elijah's example of boldness for God, for his honor, for his glory, even in a, an, incre- an increasingly wicked culture. Uh, you know, I've been talking to people recently, true even in, in my own extended family, people who are hostile toward the gospel, who, who show hatred toward, toward Christians. But we still need to be bold. Uh, we need to follow Elijah's love of, of people and also how he petitioned the Lord for what brings him honor and glory. Elijah prayed big prayers. And we, folks, we can pray big prayers and ask God to do big things that we know are in accordance with his will and that bring him honor and glory. And finally, what God says always comes about. I mean, do we not see that over and over and over in Scripture? God sees the end from the beginning. There's no surprises. He's not watching and observing how things are going and figuring it out on the fly. He's not a seat of the pants kind of God. He, he sees the end from the beginning. And what he says is true. It always comes about exactly as he says. So it's just a reminder for us. Trust what God has declared to you through his word. Just as God was reliable in what was said to Moses and as that was fulfilled, even as we've seen in our text today, what God has declared even in the New Testament, every detail about the Christian life and our permanent position once we're saved and that God will continue to work in us and uh, he will come again and all the things that Tom talked about from Revelation, those things will happen exactly as God said they will happen. So trust his word. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for these reminders as we look back at this historical narrative in this period of the the divided kingdom, a period that is dark, where we reflect on the effects of sin and rebellion and its consequences, but also uh, seeing how you raise up light, how you shine your light through faithful prophets, people that you raise up to declare your word and to bring truth to bear in calling people to repentance. And Lord, we're so thankful for how your your word is always true. Help us to, to continue to grow confident in placing our full trust in everything that you say and seeking to obey it with all of our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.